Good luck. In the second century, just a few decades after the Apostle John in the first generation of believers in various pockets of the Roman Empire, Christians were persecuted, mocked, ridiculed, and hated. It wasn't everywhere, but in various places at various times. And Jesus had promised them this, that the world would hate them just like the world hated him. The Christians would not participate in local religious festivals, and that's just about all there were, were local religious festivals. They were deemed unpatriotic because they wouldn't sacrifice to the local gods, and so were considered traitors. And because they had no physical gods to worship, they were called atheists, ironically. They were accused of cannibalism when people heard that they drank the blood of Jesus. They thought that they were something like a vampire and that they ate boys baked into bread. The body of Christ. The epistle to Diognetus, uh, which was written sometime about 130 A.D., just about 30 to 40 years after the close of the New Testament, after the book of Revelation. This epistle... Uh, was written in defense against the critics of Christianity, and therefore it's the first apologetic work. And this is an excerpt from that, that epistle. Quote, They, speaking of Christians, they love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot of each, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as all do, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. The life of a believer in this world, the life of a believer who is a member of the King of God, uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and whose king is Jesus Christ, and who lives in this kingdom and when living in this kingdom is is supposed to be, if we live and follow our Lord, lights to the world. I mean, very bright lights to the world. And so today we're going to look at our king a little more and see how to him goes all glory and honor. So we're going to start in Romans chapter 11. And let's begin with prayer, as we always do. Let's be thankful to God for his word and thankful for the great life that he has given us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, to long for understanding of his word so that we may live in that word in a holy 
and uh, separate life from the world. With that, let's bow. Our Father who is in heaven, thank you for our gifts that you have bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord. The greatest gift we have is eternal life in him. And therefore we have through him and through the Spirit, your Spirit, you have given to us to indwell us. We can come to know and understand the King, the Kingdom, the way of the Kingdom. And though that kingdom does not now exist on this earth, we live under the laws of it. And therefore, we shine in a world that does not know that kingdom. We know that the kingdom will come, and in that time, your will will be done. Until then, we strive to do your will, Father, so that we may glorify you and live the most excellent life, or as Paul wrote, the most excellent way, which is love. So we ask, Father, that through your Spirit, our understanding would be greater, and that through your Word, that we may be more and more enlightened. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, to live the fullest life as a Christian, you have to know that you're a foreigner in this world. The trap to this world is to be conformed to it. And why do we feel like doing that? It's because of our desire to fit in. And wanting to fit in is a fleshly desire. It's a consequence of the flesh. And therefore, all of us have it. The desire to fit in, to be accepted by all. Now, who wants to be accepted by all, right? It doesn't matter who they are. They look up to you or look up to me. Desire what I have. Want to be what I am. We all have this, at least as a temptation. And that's because we're proud. Proud as gods. Gods want to be worshipped. Gods want to be the top, the best, adored, sacrificed to. And our flesh has that. Our ultimate demise is our pride. We are not and not only are we not gods. But there's absolutely nothing we could do. If you were the most righteous person on the earth, there's not one thing that you could contribute to God. There's not one thing you could give Him. Not one thing He needs from you. Nothing. If you, if everything out of your mouth and every thought in your head and every action you did was perfectly righteous, God would be no more in your debt or none the better because of you. And therefore, in his kingdom, we're mighty small. Each of us, small, very small, minuscule. And yet, we're used by God. And when God uses the smallest of things, and he displays this all throughout his word, right? Who beats the giant Goliath but a young teenager? Um, Over and over in the scripture, That God uses something minuscule, something small. Or as the Lord said in the temple, that through the mouth of babes, through children, God would hear praise. That we must be content to be used by God. And one of the reasons for this, or perhaps the main reason, is the first off, that our king 
is the originator. You know, our king is, is not a created being, and that's why with all the cults, they, they exalt themselves. Uh, meaning Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they exalt the individual person because their God, their Jesus, is not God. And so the creature is exalted. In the case of Christianity, the creature is never exalted. Um, Christ is exalted. We're glorified with him. We're glorified because of him. Without him, as he said, you can do nothing. The king is the originator, the agent, and the culmination of all things. Notice the doxology. Doxology means that glory, it's the Greek word doxa, is the word for glory. And glory is used to glorify the Lord in a particular part of speech or written speech here in the scripture. And we find a most excellent one. They're, they're all excellent, but one here in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. <clears throat> this... You know, speaking of what, can, can we ever come to the end of the knowledge of God? Can we ever say that I have learned it all? Can I ever say that I've matured to the measure of the stature that belongs to Christ? We will always be reaching, always be climbing, always be learning. And the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God are unsearchable and unfathomable. There's many things that we don't know, and hence we're small. The doxology is at the end of this paragraph in verse 36. And what's here is Paul pointing out three distinct concepts of Christ in a very short place. And, um, and this is it. You see, in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. That you see this him, him over and over. Well, three times. And three different Greek prepositions. And I put them on the board for you. You know, in Greek, although there's just, we can figure this out. Even if you don't know the alphabet, you can see. Um, hold on, let me make my screen a little bigger here so that I can see. There we go. So in, uh, you have this. Auto, auto, and auton. Right? Those are the three pronouns, him. Him, him, him. So where you see in your English translation, from him, through him, to him, there's your him, him, him. The chi is and. That's uh, it's common. It's very common. It's one of the first words you learn. Chi means and. So you've got... Uh, now, if we add the first off, this first ek, E-X, is, means out from. So this com th what this means is that out from him and, and then you have dia, which is through him. That's the second preposition. Then you have your chi, your and again, which is right here. And then you have ice, which means through or unto, no, dia means through. Ice means unto or towards. And so we have out from him, through him, and unto him. 
And this last part, all things. Ta panta, all things. Let me erase all this ink. <laughs> because So we have ek, dia, and ice. Why does Paul uses three different prepositions? Because he's particular. Right? And that's why I wanted to show it to you. I could you know, say it, but at least you could see from the symbols that their E looks like RE, their D looks like RD, and their S looks like RS. So it's you know, E-I-S at the end, D-I, and E, that's their X, their C. So you have ek, dia, ice, out, from, through, unto. And then this, all things. And all things means everything. Everything. Every person, every judgment, every decision, every benefit, every blessing, everything. And everything, therefore, comes from him, creator. Everything is through him. That means that he's the agent that maintains it all. He's the one who carries it to its fruition. And when it ends, which is the end of human history, then all things are unto him. In other words, he absorbs it all. It becomes his. It is his. And all things go to him. Now think about that. Out from him, through him, or he is the agent of it all, and unto him are all things. And so, in the last part of that, verse 36, you have, and from him, through him, and to him, at the bottom there in verse 36, to him be the glory forever. And there's your doxa, D-O-X-A, doxa. To him, there's the auto again, which is him. And, and so that's to him, the glory. And then this wonderful phrase, into the ages, or through the ages, which is a Greek way of saying forever. And then you have amen at the end. Amen. To him, the glory forever. Why? Because out from him, through him, and unto him are all things. This is your king. This is your Lord. This is your husband. And the magnificence of this God-man, we couldn't possibly comprehend. Even what we know of him is so small compared to all that he is. But what we do know of him is life-altering, changing. Our perspective, what we see, how we live, is completely changed. Unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. So when we put it together, and going back to verse 34, Paul quotes, uh, first off, Isaiah, and says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? And, uh, and so that's from Isaiah chapter 40. We'll look at that. So who's known his mind? And actually known his mind so much that you might be his counselor. Now we're going to finish today with a verse that says to have the spirit of God is to know God. Or to the possibility of knowing God. If you have the spirit of a human being, you can understand a human being. That's why there are actually excellent counselors out there who understand They've been trained in and understand the mind and the behaviors of mankind. 
And so, but they couldn't possibly counsel or understand an angel. So what is the spirit of an angel? How do angels think? We really don't have any idea. But we do know how mankind thinks because we're, we're people. But when it comes to God, who in the world has ever known his mind or to become his counselor? And then in verse 35, or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? In other words, who's given God anything to which he would be, that God would be in your debt? In Isaiah chapter 40 is that first quote, who has known the mind of the Lord? In Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord reveals his magnificence. He says in Isaiah 40 that the oceans of the earth fit in the palm of his hand. He says that the dust of all the earth would be on his scales. He says the stars of all the universe to him are like a curtain, a small curtain. And that he has made every star, put them exactly where he wanted them, and named every one. If you've ever been out, like this, when I was on vacation last week, we got to walk out to the, the, one of the first nights was real clear, and we went out to the beach and looked at the stars. And uh, it was the first time I've seen the Milky Way in a long time. But you could see it. It was magnificent. How many billions of stars, right? It makes me think of Carl Sagan, if anybody knows all Carl Sagan from years past, where you say billions and billions. And there is, there's trillions and trillions, and God knows every one of them and names them all. What is, so in Isaiah 40, God is displaying his magnificence. And yet, this is quoted here with Christ. And here is the passage in Isaiah 40:13: Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, God displays his greatness. The second quote is from Job. And as we know, uh, some of us are familiar with the book of Job. In Job, God uh, was challenged. His justice was challenged by Job. Because Job didn't understand why he was going through what he was going through. And he challenged the justice of God. And at the end of the book, in some magnificent manner... God shows up. I think it's in chapter 39 or 38, where God just appears, at least in voice, and he talks to Job directly. And this is what he says. It's quoted here by Paul. Job 41:11. Uh, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And, and this is important because in Job, Job was the most righteous man in all the earth. God said this of him back in chapter 1. The most righteous man in all the earth who was kind of shaking his fist at God as to why all of this disaster happened in his life. And Job has this, he's a sinner and all his, his three buddies think all this is happening to him because of his sin. And then there's this other guy, Elihu, who shows up, who's more of a neutral character and actually acknowledges, yes, Job, you have sin, but yes, you have righteousness. But Elihu is smart enough to recognize, and he says to Job something very similar to this. Elihu says, Job, whether you sin against God or whether you do righteousness for God, you give God nothing. You don't take away anything from him. 
Like the billions and trillions of sins that have been committed by mankind throughout human history, have they diminished God in any way? I mean, they're all happening in his universe. But he hasn't lost anything, has he? He's immutable. So what, what about all our righteous deeds? We have added nothing to him. Nothing. Why is it important to recognize that? Well, we need a kingdom and a king. And in that kingdom, we have to behave properly. Or else we're not a part of it. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, you know what I mean. Like, if you're saved, you're part of that kingdom forever. But I mean, like, when we're in heaven for all of eternity, all of us are going to be perfect in resurrection bodies, and we're never going to, do, we're never going to sin again. But now, members of the kingdom, and knowing the ways of the kingdom, because the mystery has been revealed in this age, that we have the opportunity to actually live in the manner of the kingdom while we're in this kingdom. And how many Christians are taking advantage of that? How many Christians even care? How many Christians, so-called, are saying, or in their own hearts, that I just want to get along in this world as best that I can? And that's what they care about, getting along in this world. But that's not what we're here for. We're not here for that. We're foreigners in this land. Sojourners. Aliens. And so I think it's a good time here to think about why we need a kingdom at all. It's a really good question. I mean, we, I, I think on one level, we just kind of assume, you know, uh, we need a place to live, call it a city or a town or a kingdom. doesn't matter to me. It's got borders and I live in it. But it's true that all of us need it. As I just stated when I opened here, our smallness is brought out in the Scriptures so clearly. Not just in Job, not just in Isaiah, but all through. The smallness of mankind. It should Our smallness is brought out when we comprehend, whatever we can, we comprehend the majesty of the Lord. And when we comprehend the, mass, the majesty of the Lord, it should lead us to genuine humility. It will, if we comprehend it properly. The only place we comprehend it is in the Scripture, literally interpretive. But God gave, if you remember, we've looked at this, God gave Israel a king. They asked for a king in the wrong manner, but God gave them one anyway. And when God gave them their king, he told them, and he told the king himself, that you must follow me. And if you don't follow me, my judgment will come upon this nation. And we can almost imagine them saying, well, maybe initially being like, yeah, absolutely, yes, sir, we're going to follow you. But eventually they didn't. And generation after generation didn't. And, And they were disciplined mightily. And that nation was destroyed. To return but destroyed. We need a kingdom. For, for one reason, God made us social. 
It's not a mistake that God made Adam in the garden alone and then said, all right, go name the animals, and he did, and there was found no suitable helper, not even the monkey. Now, and it's not like God said, huh, geez, I, he doesn't want to be alone. Imagine that. No, but God is setting us up for something. You know, what he does with Adam, he's teaching the world. And the, it's a very famous quote, it's not good for the man to be alone. And that's true for man and woman. God made us social. And if we're going to be social, we have to be bound to each other. And to be bound to each other, we need a nation. Well, say we call it a family, but that's actually what God built his nation out of. He called Abraham, and all in that nation came from Abraham. From Jacob's 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. And so God himself built a nation of people, and he called one man to begin it, Abraham. Abraham's name means the father of a multitude. Right? It all comes from one family. In the church, we're a family. We're a body. We're united under one head. Not Abraham now, but the Lord Jesus Christ, our head. We God made us social, and so we need to be together in one family. And in the church, a nation of priests, all adopted children, united in one family. How are we united? Because we need a bond. It's not, it's, it, you know, just because you have a family doesn't mean everybody is actually united, correct? We all have families in which that didn't happen, <laughs> to say the least. And why? Well, the bond wasn't there. But God tells us what the bond is. And the bond comes right from our king, which makes sense. The bond is agape love. So when we fail one another, and we will, we forgive one another. We move on. We love. We forgive. We have compassion. We're gentle. We're kind. We're loving. We're charitable. <clears throat> so why do we need a kingdom? God made us this way to be social. Therefore, we need to be bound together. We need love, but we also need leadership. Who's going to be the leader? Well, Israel wanted a leader, right? I said, God, please give us a leader. The Ammonites are coming. Samuel's sons are stupid. And, you know, what are we going to do? And God said, you don't need one. All you need is to trust in me. I'm your leader. And it wasn't good enough for them. They demanded a king. God gave it to them. And Saul was a bad king. He was selfish. He started off okay, but the power went to his head. Just like power does. David was was excellent as a king, but he didn't live up to what that that rule to follow the law perfectly, not even close. So, of all the human kings that were to come out of God's family, none of them made the grade. None of them, except for one. So, since we cannot rule ourselves, which has become obvious, God sent a king. Not an angel. Think about it. God could have sent an angel and said, look, he's perfect. Follow him. Uh Uh-uh. Because there's something more 
about this kingdom that goes beyond being a family, being bound together in love, having a king or a leader. And that would be enough. You know, all bound together in love with a perfect leader in a perfect world, New Jerusalem in heaven. I'm not going to complain about that. I'm sure you're not going to either. But God, just like he is, gives us more than we could possibly imagine. He takes this group of people. They're people, not angels. He takes this group of men and women and he unites them to himself. So it's not like here's God and he makes this ruler say it's some great angel and a whole bunch of people and they live happily ever after. It is not that. God says, I'm going to make the king me and I'm going to make him you. He's going to be a man and God and he's going to draw you into me. So not only are you going to be an eternal kingdom, but you're going to be united with me forever. That's the kingdom I'm making. And in light of that, see, how would we know this? Unless we had studied the Scriptures for a while, because it really doesn't come together until we do so for quite some time. We need the whole realm of doctrine. We need the Old Testament, New Testament, and all of that tends to, it does, it comes together. And still, Christians are more concerned about getting by on earth. You know, that sounds good and all, but right, that's heaven, right? That's heaven. That's later. What about now? You know, I need, I want to have an easy life now. I mean, what do I got to do to have an easy life? The funnest, easiest life I can get, right? How do I get by? And if that's our attitude towards life, we have just missed everything that I just said. And hence, you know, this um, knowledge of what I just said is one thing. To have it understood is one thing. To live it is another. You know, we've talked a lot lately about the coming of the Lord. It's one thing to know that the Lord is coming. It is another thing to long for it and look for it and be alert and watchful for it. You know, it's one thing to know you're to glorify God. It's another thing to overcome sin in your life. Because if you don't overcome, I don't mean sinless, you know that. But I mean, if you don't have victory over sins that are a man handling you or a woman handling you, then you're not going to glorify God with your life. Because you're a slave. You're a slave to your flesh. And therefore, you know, it's one thing to know that I'm to glorify God. It's quite another thing to actually do it. And when it comes to knowing your king and your kingdom, and that it is much more than just a nice place for all of eternity where we're all getting along, finally, but that it's actually a group of people in glory in union with God himself. And everything on earth pales by comparison. Hence, sojourners, aliens in this world. 
We take care of business, just like our friend, I don't even know his name, Diag something. <laughs> I never heard of him before. Diagnatus, Diagnatus, something like that. But as he wrote, as he was defending Christians, he says, in every foreign land, we're natives, and in our homes, we're strangers, because we're of heaven, not of this earth. But we do follow the laws and actually follow them according to the way of Christ. We work as unto the Lord. We love as unto the Lord. We give as unto the Lord, because we are the Lord's. We work because we're a light of the world. But we're not of this place. And nor do we consider the things of this place worthy to be longed for. And that is a trap of so many. Believers, I mean. And you know it as well as I do. It happened in Israel. It's happening now. Give us a king like other nations. Like all the nations. God says absolutely not. Back then, he gave them a king. He gave them Saul, and he stunk. (laughs) Just uh, stunk at being a king. But now that you have the Lord Jesus Christ as your king, God has given you no other. So go to John 17. Look at John 17, 22. Now, what we talked about was the greatness, the glory of our Lord. Those three prepositions, unto him, through him, and to him. Why do we need a kingdom? God has made us social. We need a family. Therefore, we need a bond. and We need a leader. We need a king. When the Son of God became a man, he drew saved mankind right into himself. We need, a, we need unity. We need a king. We need a kingdom. But God went a big, huge step farther. He gave us himself. He drew us into himself. Look at this is the Lord's prayer in Gethsemane in John 17, 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Right? You can't have that unless you're in union with God, in union with Christ. The glory which you've given me. Now, we just read about his glory. Unto him is all glory forever. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Think of all the attacks against the church's unity that have been so successful over the, the uh, history of the church. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, and loved them, sorry, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me to be with me where I am, the right hand of God, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Right, and that's going back into long before time when there was nothing but the Trinity. And so, this amazing passage. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is what He wants for us. And it is granted to Him. I in them, that's Jesus Christ in you, and you in me. And so, if the Father is in Christ and Christ is in you, the Father is in you. And you see, this is the, our unity is actually 
provided, not in just some way in which God has given us to get along, but God has given each of us himself, and that we share as a bond. That Christ is in you and Christ is in me. The Father is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, and they're in me. And that unites us. And yet, because of pride, because people want stuff in this world, not just things and money, but they want approbation, they want power, they want to be recognized, they want to be the smartest person in the room. And so they fight with one another, Christians, rather than live in love. And it's a damn shame. It shouldn't happen. And we, we all in our heart must say it mustn't happen because that's not our kingdom. So God has made man to need others. See that as well. I can't do this without you. I can't. Oh, especially I think for guys too. It's the biggest downer. (laughs) I say downer to our pride. Do I need others? God has shown me that lesson. Man, oh man. Even when I thought I knew that lesson, that was my pride telling me, oh, Joe, you know that lesson. You don't need to know any more about that. God swooped in and said, Joe, you don't know anything about this. You need others. No, I don't, Lord. It's just I'm so spiritual. It's just you and me. I don't need others. So spiritual, my holy butt. That's what God said to me. Not in those words. You need others, dude. He didn't say dude either. But it became abundantly clear. We need to depend upon one another. It's difficult. And and I think as Americans, America is the most independent nation, the the nation of the most independent people the world has ever seen. Uh, Besides that, also the most successful uh, and also the most unified nation the world's ever seen. It's pretty amazing how that all came together. But we're still you know, individualists. We don't need anybody. That's a flat-out lie. Now, it doesn't mean you need everybody. That's communism, which, by the way, never worked. I don't think you need me to tell you that, and it never will. But um, we need one another. But we also need a leader. If we say, all right, let's all, let's all be together and need one another, and in for what? You know, to what end? There's a lot of people who are part of groups who are united in their cause, and their cause is a bunch of bull. And it's absolutely wrong. So we, from the scripture, from what this book says, inspired by God, sufficiently full of all the information we need, literally and interpreted as best that we possibly can do. And then we have our leader, because this is the mind of Christ. So with that picture in our minds, united, this kingdom bound together by love with our amazing king, and then united together, enveloped into the Trinity, With that picture in our minds, we could see that in this kingdom that we're a part of, there's no room for pride. And I'm thinking of the kingdoms of the world, which are really just manifestations of individual people's nonsense. 
nonsense. I'm listening to this book about uh, kingdoms that have fallen into folly. Oh my, it is so much fun. Um, it's this historical book that, uh, <coughs> you know, for instance, like kings in the past who said, you know what, yeah, just be, it doesn't matter where or when. Could be the king of France, king of England, king of you know Holy Roman Emperor or uh, the Roman Emperor, be Nero, you know whoever. In in this age, and a king will just one day say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a new edict. Right, I'm going to do something. And all his advisors say, eh, that's not smart. But he's the king, and he's so full of himself that he says, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. And he completely destroys his kingdom. It's happened over and over and over. It's called folly, right? We talked about it yesterday. Folly. But why does he do that? Just kings do that? Oh, God, no. We do that. It's just that he happens to be in a position of power by which his folly could end up in the destruction of thousands of people, perhaps millions. In the kingdom of God, there's no place for pride. There's no place for lust, for multiplying earthly things. There's only room for temperance. And temperance means I can take so much, in some cases not at all. But temperance means I can have so much and not any more. And while we who are of the true kingdom come to know our Lord in his kingdom... We should be shining lights in this dark world, right? We know the king. We know the kingdom. We know about the absorption into the trinity of which we are. We're in union with him. I use the word absorption. It's not a very theological word, but there's no word to really describe it other than I'm in him and he's in me, and I need to be a light to the world. This is the ultimate, you know, the the final kingdom, which is the Antichrist is called a beast But the kingdom that he rules is also labeled as a beast. And this beast, notice in uh, Revelation 18.9, and the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensually with her. And then you can do dot, dot, dot after that because I just took that portion of the sentence. But he's talking about Babylon in this final kingdom of this age. It is the last kingdom of this age. I don't mean the church age. I mean the age between the advents. First Advent, Second Advent. And in the tribulation period, which is the last seven years before Christ returns, this is the final Gentile kingdom, Babylon. And it's wicked. And, you know, uh, in this verse, if we read the second half of it, all of these kings who got rich, there's all the elites. These are all the elites at that time. They got loads of money. And loads of uh, lustful immorality, satisfied sensuality. They were living the high life for a few years. And then God stops it. And they witness the whole thing. They weep for Babylon. And meanwhile, while they're down there weeping for Babylon, guess where we are? We're getting ready for our wedding feast in heaven in which the hallelujahs are being sung. That's Revelation 19. All right, so our kingdom, our king, something that we've never imagined. But now we get to imagine it. 
You know, the passage that says eye is not seen, it has not seen, but now it may, because the mystery has been revealed. Ear is not heard, and it's true, you know, there's an aspect to that passage that means when we get to heaven, there's going to be things there that we're like, wow, I never imagined that, obviously. But the brunt of the passage is that now that God has given us his spirit, and now that we can see the deep things of God because we're in union with Christ and we have the indwelling spirit, Through the scripture, we can see the deep things of God, and now our eyes can see, and our ears can hear, and our minds can imagine. What? This life. I mean, that's what it really is. It's not stuff. It's the Lord and His kingdom and the way of that kingdom. You know, people think stuff is going to give them happiness, but it doesn't. It, not at all. I mean, for a little while, but it doesn't. And the true happiness comes from the king. He said, abide in me, and my joy will abide in you. Couldn't be any simpler than that. Without me, you can do nothing. So go to 1 Corinthians 2, 8. Actually, just go to verse 6. Let's shorten this up. Paul says in verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Now, uh, if we know the context of this letter, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, who are far from mature, right? They're haggling with each other over who's their favorite pastor, and they have cliques that are fighting with one another. They're taking each other to court over stupid issues. Uh, They have jealousy and strife among them. They're fighting with each other. And on top of that, they're very immoral. They're not living holiness at all. And so Paul says to them here, because they're not wise, Paul says, but we who are wise speak wisdom. To those who are mature, well, Paul speaks wisdom to everybody, but to the mature, the only ones who understand him. We do speak wisdom to those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So you see how Paul here to the Corinthians, who are so absorbed in the earthly world, right? that's their their problem. They're like, yeah, yeah, Paul, but. That temple to Aphrodite is super fun. So, you know, their use of drugs and alcohol and illicit sexuality, they think is this is great and it's all grace, so it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what we do to our bodies. And they're fighting with one another. Why? Why would they fight with one another? Why does anybody fight with another? They either want what they have or they want them to admire them or they're not getting the respect that they think that they should get or whatever. They're angry, they're bitter, they're jealous, so they fight. And that's zero to do. That's all earthly stuff. To be the top dog, that's earthly. Uh, To have the most stuff, that's earthly. To be admired by others, earthly. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
The greatest among you is your servant, not the leader. He's so clear about this. And yet here the Corinthians are involved in this world. And what does Paul say to them? We speak a wisdom, and the wisdom he's going to talk about here is Christ and his kingdom. We speak a wisdom to the mature who understand it, but the people of this world don't understand it. And, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Corinthians, you're in this world, even though you're saints. Even though you're born again and saved, and even though you're saints, and even though you're not of this world, you don't understand what I say because you're just like them. And what are they missing out on? They say, well, we don't understand Paul's doctrine. Big deal. It is a big deal. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And there's that word again, glory, doxa. See, this wisdom that now is revealed to us has been hidden before. Hence, it's a mystery, or it was. It's still a mystery now to too many people, even Christians. It's a mystery because they don't care. They just don't care about it. The other things of this world and the things of themselves are more important. It's flat out what it is. Other things are more important. And so that is not important. So they don't long to know what this is, this mystery. But God hid it all from the, all ages until our age. And then through Christ, he opened up the gates of heaven to reveal this wisdom. And we're too busy to learn it. The mystery is embodied in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 8. Which, now if you have New American Standard, you have the wisdom, is it should be in italics. It's italicized. It's not there in the original. But the word which refers back to it, so it's fine. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age have understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And there's our word glory again. To him is due all glory. If they had understood it, they wouldn't have crucified him. And you see, they so not understood it that they did. They took their creator, their king, and they nailed him to a cross. Just as it is, as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And what God, this now, is what we can see. We can see. We can see the king. We can see the kingdom. We can see the laws of the kingdom. We can see them as much as we like. And sadly, and, and I think it's a very big problem in modern Western Christianity that 
adherence to the Word of God, which is the only place you're going to see this, has waned so poorly, has waned so much, that there's such a poor understanding of what is actually in the Scripture. I don't mean memorized. I mean studied. It has to be observed and interpreted and applied. And when we do that, we'll come to see. But again, for many, it's not important enough. Other things are. Their stuff, their money, their happiness, their uh, hedonism, their whatever, whatever they're after. Now, um, so just to pull this full circle for you now. If you skip down to verse 14, and I'm skipping a bit here about, you know, the spirit, we have the Spirit of God so we can understand the things of God. We talked about that. But in verse 14 it said, Paul writes, but a natural man, this is soulish man. Um, and natural is fine. The, the Greek word is sukikos. It means not spiritual. So someone who is earthly. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. You, know, you need the Holy Spirit. For he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And notice this in verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Does that sound familiar to you? And again, that's put on the board so you can see them both. Isaiah chapter 40, that Paul quoted in Romans 11 that we started with. Who's known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Paul says, who's known the mind of the Lord that could instruct him? In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. And so we have the Spirit so that we can know the mind of the Lord. Right. He said, the spiritual man appraises all things. Who's known the mind of the Lord? The implication is that now we can. To, you know, to the infinite extent that what he is, obviously not. But what we can know is revealed to us. As Paul started this paragraph, the mystery that we speak to the mature has now been revealed. And when you see it, you will see what eye is not seen. You will hear what ear is not heard. You will enter into your mind what you have never imagined, but now it will enter. But you have to, by the Spirit of God, know what's in the text. And when you know that, you have to apply it. Knowing it is applying it. We can read it, we can interpret it, but if we don't apply it, we don't know it. And therefore, we would live in this world as in the kingdom. Isolated? No. Remember, God made us a kingdom because he made us to be together. Bonded together in love, following our king. We would together with joy and courage and confidence and charity and love absolutely conquer in this world and be lights to the world. And on top of that, with a minute left, we would fail at it, even the best of us. 
from time to time, we'd get our eyes on the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, fall flat in our face. Don't even look like a child of God right now. And what would we do? Because of the grace of God, because of the love of God, knowing we're forgiven. Christianity is the only religion where you can live in great joy and forget your past. Because it's the true religion. Only in Christianity can you stand confidently with great joy while all that big trail of disaster is behind you that you've caused. But because you're forgiven, you can change. And when you fall, you're forgiven. Get back up and keep going. That's the precious and rewarding life that God has given us through our King and our Kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you that you and you alone, Father, have given us our true king and are the author of our kingdom. Though we don't have it in this world right now, Father, we, though be persecuted and and challenged and tempted, we will soldier on in meekness and obeying you and trusting you, and that through that we would glorify you as we are lights to the world. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace. In Christ's name, amen.